Talk number 164. It's Sunday, November 16, 2008. I'm here on a Sunday morning at Google. Day two of MeetBSD is about to kick off, and I did want to upload a um, discussion that I recorded yesterday among some of the members of the FreeBSD core team. I also uh, want to take a minute to thank IX Systems for hosting the 15th anniversary party last night at the Zen Buddha Lounge. It was quite a party. Um, they really know how to, to put on a, a, a good time. So uh, everyone, I think, survived that night. It was a, a great time. A lot of people from the history of FreeBSD showed up. And all in all, just uh, a great celebration of a great piece of software, a great operating system. So in this interview coming up, uh, please forgive some of the background noise. The room that we were in uh, had some air conditioning going, so there's a bit of a, you know, sort of the sound of the air conditioning in the background, but I hope it's not too distracting. So anyway, on to the interviews. Okay, so we're sitting here today on the first day of MeetBSD in California in the Googleplex, and I'm at a table with a few of the FreeBSD core team members and just FreeBSD developers in general. So I guess I'd like to start by going around the table, having everyone introduce themselves and let me know, you know what your position is in, within FreeBSD, the kind of projects that you're working on, and uh, yeah, all that stuff. I'm uh, Brooks Davis. I'm uh, on the core team, and a, I'm a source and ports committer. Um, I do a lot of high-performance computing and related, uh, uh, whatever is related to that that I need, need to do to make that work for me. Uh, my name's Chris Kennelly. I'm a new member of the core team. Uh, I've been involved with FreeBSD for quite a while. I started uh, about 10 years ago working on the ports collection, um, and I've been the uh, security officer for a couple of years. And uh, most recently, I've been working on uh, benchmarking-related projects and uh, a lot of uh, stress testing and um, quality testing of FreeBSD. And uh, I've uh, been a member of Port Manager for quite a while, I haven't had as much time to work on that lately, but I'm still um, involved in that. Uh, and yeah, so now I'm, I'm on the core team. I'm Robert Watson. I've been on the core team for a little while now, uh, but I have interests in uh, security and uh, high-performance networking on multi-processor systems. Uh, I've also played a role on the release engineer team, but I'm happy to say that I've never actually been the release engineer. Makes life easier. Uh, I'm Peter Wem. Um, I've been around for a while. I was I've been on the core team since uh, the very first election that we had, and predate even that. Um, took some time off, and somehow I got talked back into running again, and so I'm back on core team again after the time off. Um, I work for Yahoo. I've been doing all sorts of weird, and wonderful things over the years. Uh, currently working on things like Valgrind. Uh, yeah, that's, that's been keeping me up, keeping me up late at nights for a while now. So, I'm uh, Philip Paps. I'm not a member of the core team. I merely herd these cats. In uh, the real world, I'm an embedded sort of person working mainly on networking sort of things. And in the FreeBSD kernel, I end up breaking lots of things randomly in no specific subsystems. One thing that, that's happened recently is an election. We don't have everybody here, but we do have uh, some people who have come back. 
I don't know whether there's sort of any any news in that election or you know anything unusual. Well, the uh, core team elections happen every two years, and uh, they basically involve all FreeBSD developers with active commitments, and we define active as having committed in the last calendar year. And any FreeBSD developer can run for core, uh, and usually we sort of have about twice as many. And, and uh, uh, I think when I first ran, I was the uh, the bottom of the pool, but these days I'm doing a doing a little bit better. But it's a it's an interesting thing. I mean, having a, a democratically elected leadership for an open source project. Uh, I think one of the ways in which it's it's quite unusual is that it's actually allowed the project to continue gradual changes in leadership over time. So people can come and go, but the project continues. Uh, and I think this is very important because if you rely too much on one person, you know, it's very easy for them to become burned out. It's very easy for them to move on to something else, leaving the project without somebody to help run the show. Uh, and also, there will be radical changes sometimes between one person and then the next person and there won't be any continuity like we have with the previous core team. I think it's interesting that uh, this time around uh, almost the entire uh, previous core team was re-elected. I think one person chose not to, to stand for re-election and uh, so we, uh, there were two two new people who, who were myself and, and Peter, is this right? I think so. Uh, and and the, the, the rest of the core team was re-elected so I guess that's a uh, something of a vote of confidence from the, the developers that uh, things were going pretty well. I agree with that. Another thing on the horizon is 7.1. Who uh, could, I guess, give a little update on, you know, why why is it called 7.1? What what flips that over? Robert mentioned he had an interest in release engineering. So, <laughs> <laughs> so FreeBC 7.1 is the, the latest release on the FreeBC 7 branch. Uh, so, the way we do development is we have major releases every few years, and then we have a series of minor releases uh, that sort of incrementally improve major releases. We deploy big new technologies only in major releases because they can be potentially quite disruptive. Uh, 7.0 was one of our most successful uh, .0 releases. Normally, .0 releases in with any piece of software have something of a reputation because as much as you test things in advance and get everyone to run them and work through them, you know, problems inevitably occur when you deploy a piece of software to millions of computers instead of you know, a thousand or something, tens of thousands. Uh, and actually 7.0 was incredibly successful. So 7.1 we see as a logical success to that. It has performance enhancements, it has some quite neat new features. For example, 7.1 is the first release that will include DTrace support, uh, something we've been talking about for a long time and something that we are very pleased to have in the tree now. So uh, CPU sets, uh, John Baldwin ported, ported them back from 8, and uh, it's going to help a number of com compute-bound applications and that type of thing. And wasn't there a scheduler which didn't quite make it into 7 that's coming out in 7.1? Yeah, so, so the ULE scheduler was actually present in, in 7.0, but it was not the default uh, scheduler, and that, that switch has now been flipped, so uh, 7.1 uh, has the, the new scheduler, which uh, for most workloads will provide... Um, uh, better performance and better in interactive response. Another feature in FreeBSD 7.1 uh, is our continued improvement of network stack performance. Uh, sort of a, the technical details are scary, um, but suffice to say we've really been focusing on how you improve performance on multiprocessors. And so 7.1 includes changes that dramatically improve the performance of uh, the bind and name server uh, under very high loads. Uh, so we support parallel UDB much better than we did previously. And of course, benchmarks are always... Uh controversial, but has there been a, a fair number of benchmarks run between 7.0 and 7.1? Uh, I've run uh, some benchmarks of, of the, the changes that were at that time in, in 
FreeBSD 8 current and then have been merged back to uh, FreeBSD 7.1, some of the changes Robert was mentioning and others. Uh, so uh, I've not had the time to rerun with 7.1 specifically, but um, I'm pretty confident that, that performance improvements we were seeing previously uh, will also be there on 7.1. Uh, I've done, done some other benchmarks verifying that there have been no regressions in performance and, and that sort of thing. This is something I, I hope to to improve on in the future is, is developing an infrastructure for uh, automating the benchmarks we run. That way we can keep a, a much tighter handle on, on changes that go in. Uh, right now, uh, it relies on me or a few other developers sitting down and actually running the benchmarks by hand. And this takes time. It, uh, it's hard to run these regularly. It's hard to get a good test coverage. But if we can automate this process, um, then we can identify changes that either help or, or uh, regress performance as they happen and this will uh, shorten this feedback cycle and, and hopefully uh, keep us pointed in the right direction. Occasionally things get slipped through where for a few months we don't notice there's a problem and then, then it takes some time to work out what it was. Hopefully we never actually let those things slip into a release but, um, but I think if we can improve our, our feedback time then this will uh, uh, be a, a huge improvement going forward. Possibly something worth mentioning. Um, Chris was talking about some of the bench, the improvements that were put into eight that we've backported to seven for seven one. Um, most of those were basically um, driven by specific benchmark problems, and so uh, they were done in such a way that the, we'd intended that they would be generally useful, and we could bring them back to seven one anyway. But we just needed to give them time to stabilize in the the eight branch to start with. So yeah, it turns out that when you're doing changes to a kernel, it's it's quite important to consider the path by which you get the feature out to the user base. Some features are uh, potentially quite non-disruptive, but significant improvements. And if you structure those changes very carefully, it is possible to start introducing them in point releases. So we're, we're quite careful about how we do this. And, uh, and I'm, I'm pleased that we've managed to pull these things together so nicely for 7.1. Uh, one of the ways in which things can go wrong is that as you change the kernel, things that depend on the kernel, like device drivers and so on, uh, have turned out to have dependencies on the way things run in very specific ways, and when you try to change uh, to improve performance or add new features, you risk changing the things that the device drivers depend on. So we've uh, we've managed to make most of these improvements without actually changing what we refer to as the ABI or the, the binary interface between kernels and modules. And how many beta release cycles have you had? I think we're have we actually shipped beta two yet. If not, beta two will be out the door shortly. Usually our beta cycles, we have uh, maybe uh, two to three betas, depending on how the release goes, and then we'll do a series of release candidates. And What really differentiates a release candidate from a beta is that release candidate is what you think you're going to release. So you release it, and then you wait a little bit to see if actually it was what you were going to release. So ideally, after you start the release uh, candidate cycle, there will be no functional changes other than those that correct specific bugs or regressions that turn up in testing. And I think we're pretty much at that point now with 7.1. Another thing worth mentioning is even though we do specific beta and pre-release and uh, release candidates, we have a lot of people actually running the, the basically the release uh, development branch anyway, and so we get a lot of heads-up testing in advance of actual betas and, and pre-releases and release candidates, um, and that sometimes helps us head off problems, and so we get the maximum use out of the betas so that, we think, so that they've got a pretty good chance of actually being in good shape when they actually hit the ground. There are occasional exceptions, but usually point releases that aren't .0 releases go quite smoothly. They're not quite mechanical, but uh, but certainly they generally aren't disrupted, and, and there are not too many surprises as you go along. Any new architectures introduced in this dot release? 
uh, maybe bits of Zen are going back. I, to I think that the major way? architectural changes is the support for Zen. Uh, Kip was just giving a just gave a talk updating us on the the status of that. Um, uh, so six six dot four will, will also, which is also just in the process of being released. Six dot four and seven dot one will, will support running uh, as a, a, a user operating system on, on Zen. Right. I think those though are uh, changes in a branch. So what you do is you install that version of FreeBSD and then you have to pull down uh, Kip specific patches and parts for it. Um, oh, so it's not all back in the base tree yet. Okay. Uh, if it is all back in the base tree for eight, and hopefully we'll see those things get into uh, into future seven dot x releases. Although uh, we mentioned six dot four, six dot four I think is almost the end of the line on six dot x releases. It's um, the release has almost been on autopilot because everything seems to be in quite good shape and, and very well tested. Uh, so we're quite pleased to get that at the door. I think it speaks to the success of the 7 branch that we're actually thinking of, of reaching the last release on 6. Uh, in the past, we found that we've had to do point releases quite long after, on the on the previous branch, quite long after the next branch uh, has actually started up. Uh, so we're very pleased about that. What do we get up to? 4.11, 4.12 or something? Something along those lines. Yeah. And 6.4 is, is pretty much shaping up to be a uh, one one things up release rather than mm-hmm. uh, we we have to we ha- rather than having to put a sustaining release out because seven isn't good enough or eight isn't good enough and having having our head branch or uh, top of tree uh, in relatively good shape to begin releases from is making a big difference. So when when we don't come from so far behind, it's a lot easier to get out a point a point zero release that's that's in reasonably good shape. Yeah, one one uh, one more uh, seven feature that. Uh, uh, just recalled is that uh, we're uh, doing some experimental uh, DVD builds, uh, assuming we can resolve the dist- some distribution system issues uh, yes. with the uh, oversized files. Uh, yeah. Looks like uh, we may well be having DVD releases finally. Yeah. Yes, and on that particular one, we discovered that CV sub can't do file sizes larger than two gigabytes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another feature we have coming in uh, in FreeBSD 7.1 is a lot of work has gone into. Uh, NFS locking uh, and uh, things like support for crypto and so on. So we have significantly improved NFS client locking support now, uh, which took a little while to stabilize out. But I think it's uh, something that a lot of our users will really appreciate. Seeing. As well as uh, GSS API uh, crypto support in NFS. Didn't Doug completely redo the RPC layer underneath NFS? Right, our kernel RPC parts have been yeah. significantly cleaned up, and this was required to do the lock manager. Yeah. That's the unfortunate part about putting you on the spot about new features. You know, there's, there's going to be gaps in each one of yours awareness of what's going on. But um, do you have a way of, of gauging or tracking how many people are in still in six versus seven? Uh, Colin Percival, the security officer, uh, can, has has some insight on that with uh, his FreeBSD update code because he sees what releases people are fetching from. I haven't seen his latest numbers, but uh, uh, he periodically uh, posts posts numbers uh, showing. What portion of the, at least the population that does use FreeBSD update uh, yeah. is using what release? That's not necessarily an accurate sample of the user base at whole. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's a really good sample of, of the people who take specific binary releases and run precisely the binaries that we give out. It's not, it doesn't necessarily cover people who build it from source or roll their own releases or anything like that. So Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I- interestingly, it sounds like the PCBSD folk are going to have released uh, PCBSD 7, which of course is based on the FreeBSD 7 kernel. Uh, so they made the move forward from 6. So hopefully we'll see all the PCBSD users moving forward to 7. I guess another interesting category of users that Peter uh, sort of alluded to are the people who include FreeBSD in embedded products, so routers and firewalls and so on. And we've seen a lot of signs that those consumers are at the very least pulling FreeBSD 7 technologies into their releases, if not whole cloth upgrading to 7. Uh, a lot of those people move forward to 6, 
uh, from four, not all that long ago. It was a, a significant OS change. You uh, look at sort of 10 years' worth of OS technology, and they were kind of forced to move forward because of the sudden prevalence of multi-core systems. And uh, I think the fact that people were pulling in the 7 technology so quickly speaks to the fact that we're continuing to improve performance for high-scalability machines and, uh, and making those features both perform but also be very stable. It's also a lot less painful to move from 6 to 7 than it is or than it was to move from 4 to five or six. Yeah. But, uh, four, to, four to six was a very traumatic change for a lot of people who were using uh, large deployed sites with, with FreeBSD. And six or seven, fortunately, is a relatively... relatively uh, smooth ride. A relatively smooth incremental ride rather than major turmoil. Yeah. Well, we've been trying hard to make it that way because yeah. bringing the new technologies to people, you know, is, they're very exciting and they're very interesting, but inevitably they have some administrative consequences for the way the system is run. But we've been, I think, doing a very good job of providing those big changes, yet providing them in a way that are, make upgrades easier. We've also we've also put a lot of effort into things like uh, locking down the user lane DBI. So we've got all the symbol versioning present in the seven series now, um, and that's one of the big big problems that people face going from 4 to 6 is you jump from GCC 2 to GCC 3 which had its own different had different ABIs, you had different shared library version numbers you had a whole multitude of problems that made it uh, far from a smooth transition to go from 4 to 6 and 6 to 7 is even though it's gone from GCC 3 to GCC 4, uh, the ABI is relatively stable in between them you just only really have to deal with the, the .so version numbers and hopefully it's the last time of that I did hear 8 thrown around a few times here and that sort of comes up against the next topic which is you know how you start working on what will go into eight which is the developer summit so it'll be interesting to hear some summaries of what's been going on in recent developer summits and what that might mean for eight network stack virtualization is pretty big in uh, eight that's going on right now so we had a dev summit in uh, Cambridge in the UK this summer where we pretty much sat around the table and read through a 400,000 line, 40,000 thousand, many, many thousands of lines of diff of the virtualization efforts. Yeah, this was the first developer summit we've had in isolation from a major conference. Normally, our developer summits are sort of piggybacked on the front or the back end of a BSD conference, be it BSD CAN or, or Meet BSD or whatever. Uh, so we actually held a, a four-day developer summit at Cambridge where we just got developers together, sort of 20 to 30 developers for a four-day period. Uh, we had some very nice dinners in Cambridge, but we also spent a lot of time looking at kernel code uh, talking about features that are up and coming, uh, doing a lot of collaborative work. Uh, and this is quite a good model for developers, I think. It took a bit more preparation, uh, but it's working out quite nicely. And certainly, virtualization was the biggest thing topic we talked about. So network stack virtualization basically allows us to have many different network stacks on the same instance of the operating system. So for people who've used uh, virtual server features such as our jail feature, um, they'll be aware that there are lots of limitations on what you can do inside these virtual environments. So the virtual network stack allows each jail to have its own firewall, its own IPsec, its own routing, uh, virtual network interfaces, and rate limiting. And we can even allow uh, users who administer to administer inside the jail just their own network stack instance. So you might be able to allow administrators inside jails to administer their own firewalls, which is something that we could never do previously. Uh, so it's a very exciting feature, but at the same time, it's also a very large feature. Any other major features that identify eight? There've been a lot of a lot of changes. It's hard to sort of think of the the big big ticket items off the top of my head. One of, the, one of the interesting things is the moment we cut 
a point release, if not long before, you know, the .o release of, of one branch, we've already started working really heavily on the next branch, so there's a lot of changes in flight. Certainly, uh, Zen is in the tree, which is very exciting and something that we've wanted to see happen for a long time. Uh, there's ongoing performance work with, with Network Stack that, that Robert's working on. That's that's a that's a major drive of, of any time, and basically, um, basically, there's a whole series of infrastructure changes to sort of lay better foundations for performance improvements over time, and individual sort of performance improvements. Some of those get backported back to the stable releases where they make sense, but once they start getting into fairly severe infrastructural support changes, then then they're pretty much on their own. So. You start seeing things like uh, performance improvements in the eight series that just simply can't be backported because they'll be they disrupt too much about what makes a stable branch stable. So actually, so one feature that is appearing in seven one and that was in eight for quite a while before we brought it back is support for full TCP offload on uh, ten gigabits Chelsea cards, which is quite a neat feature. Uh, it allows you to have the entire network stack run inside the hardware of the network card and. Uh, this took quite a bit of work to get merged back so that we could do it without disrupting uh, the properties of the stable branch that is so important. But this is a very exciting feature from a performance perspective. And there's also going to be a developer summit on the tail end of this Meet BSD conference here in California. Are there any specific goals for that conference, for that dev summit? So I think this, this one is, is planned as more of a hybrid of the two strategies we, we've used, where in the past most of the, the summits have been uh, developers giving presentations about work that's ongoing, Occasionally, more of a sort of discussion of of uh, ideas of how to approach uh, problems or, or um, solutions to problems. I think this time we, we plan to have one day in that format and one day of more of a sort of collaborative work environment like the the UK Dev Summit. I think that's the plan. I, uh, so uh, I think those both both have their their uh, advantages. So hopefully, this will be. Uh, be quite productive. I would expect to see a lot of conversations about network stacks. We have a lot of companies in the Bay Area uh, who are heavily involved in FreeBSD products uh, that are involved networking. So we'll have quite a few representatives of those companies at our developer summit talking about the work they're doing, the things that interest them, and trying to give us some feedback on what we have in progress. Uh, I know another project that we have developers interested in talking about is support for uh, unmapped buffer cache, which allows you to make more effective use of uh, physical memory and improve performance uh, in our storage infrastructure. So that's actually, uh, you, you bring up a good point, which is that the developer summits are also a way in which we uh, talk to uh, to some of our, our customers, the, the people who, who are using FreeBSD in, commercially in products or uh, appliances and so on. So we, we try and uh, include them in, in developer summits uh, as a way of communicating uh, in both directions what, what the problems are, what the needs are, how we can go about uh, using our, our resources within the project and also um, getting help from, from our users, uh, we found that, that this is actually quite a good way of making sure we're, we're, we're working on problems that are actually important to people who are using FreeBSD. Um, and we don't tend to get a lot of uh, feedback, a, a lot of participation in, in, the, in the traditional mailing list uh, support forums from people who are using FreeBSD commercially. But... I think at least we, we've uh, this has been a good way of of engaging those people in uh, in, in the development process. One of the properties of FreeBSD developers who tend up end up on the core team is that although they may well be involved in FreeBSD in their day job, they also seem to spend a lot of their own personal time on FreeBSD. Um, but it's important to recognise there are members of our community who. 
for whom the operating system is their day job, right? But it's not something that they spend a lot of time outside of work. And how to engage those employers, those companies, those employees uh, in the community because they do have something to contribute and they certainly have something to gain has always been interesting. Um, by having MeetBSD in the Bay Area and having a developer summit in the Bay Area for the first time in uh, what must be three or four years, if not longer, five years, five years is, is really actually quite exciting because we'll be able to get a lot more people for whom it is their day job you know, and, and perhaps not too much more than that uh, to come and get involved in the community more. And it's also a nice opportunity for everyone to celebrate 15 years of free BSD this evening. Yes, we're all feeling old. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember when Some I was the, the <laughs> I remember when I was the youngest person on the previously core team. <laughs> I guess another topic uh, that's come up between now and the last time that I spoke with some of the members of the core team was the switch to subversion for your source code repository. I don't know which one of you may have been most involved in that and might have some uh, stories to tell. <laughs> All eyes turn to Peter. <laughs> Source code control. Hmm. I did a survey of my mailbox, and the first time the subject of what we should replace CVS with came up in 1997. We've been talking about this for nearly 11 years now and back then the latest and greatest thing which everybody was was all excited about and pushing for was BitKeeper and Linux was obviously using it very su successfully and it works for them, we should do it too and that obviously didn't work out too well in the end um, over the years we've tried Perforce uh, Perforce does what it does very very well um, but it just didn't really fit too well with the way that FreeBSD developers uh, typically uh, like to do things. Um, the biggest problem that we had with it was it kept it kept all of the client state on the server and that basically meant that everybody who had access to the, to the source code server um, had to have usernames and passwords and would basically it would accumulate tens, hundreds of megabytes of state trying to remember what all these individual random machines out there have checked out and while that's very good for doing things like fast checkouts it just requires a lot more maintenance and discipline than many of our developers have become used to over the years with CVS and with CVS you just check something out on a machine and after the disk fails you just forget about it or you rm-rf the tree and it's gone but the problem is the Perforce server never forgets about those and we were constantly having problems with the Perforce server database getting so big that it simply wasn't able to fit comfortably in server memory and we would have tremendous, tremendous slowdowns and we just basically needed a, a, a monstrous machine if we were ever going to be able to do FreeBSD development using, using Perforce as the primary thing for FreeBSD. Um, so we started to look around at some more, more options and over the years we've had everything from PV, uh, PCVS, PRCS, um, Lately, we've had Git, we've had Mercurial, uh, Subversion, obviously. Um, Darks, I think, came up. Um, and there was, there was one, or, one or two others that uh, escaped my mind at the moment. And they all had... They all had their pros and cons, and the one thing that was in common between them all was that nobody could agree on why to use this particular one rather than their own favourite one. And... 
in the end, um, basically, we ended up making a um, executive decision. Basically, realizing that we couldn't keep on going with CVS because we were losing too much information. And if you're familiar with the technical details, every time somebody commits on a branch, we lose track of where the where the branch where the file came from, when the last modification was, uh, and a whole host of various different things just just go missing, and you can't ever. Uh, regain that information. Um, Subversion being a logical successor to CVS uh, basically basically was the logical choice because we could continue to do things the way that we'd always been doing it. Uh, We could just check out on any particular machine that we liked. Um, It worked like CVS. The commit model was commit model was the same um, and there were a whole series of technical and implementation details that made it more suitable for the way that we uh, we did things as a project versus something like Git or Mercurial or any of the distributed model ones. So we ended up doing that. We realized that it wasn't going to make everybody happy, but it was good enough, and it was more important that we stop losing metadata so that we could do we could do branches, we could do uh, internal development, we could move things from uh, back from having two or three separate source code repositories back into one so that all development could move back into something that's visible where we visible so everybody could see what was going on and we didn't have surprises that would turn up out of the perforce tree and get dropped into the CVS tree without that warning um, what else um, one big moving factor was the fact that Peter just stood up and did it <laughs> I, I will make it work the, the, uh, the migration was obviously not entirely painless no um, so I spent between four and six months uh, doing conversions fixing problems fixing problems in the source code repository in, in the CVS repository that we had we'd accumulated over the years there were a horrendous number of um, Subtle corruptions in the in the RCS files that CVS maintains. Uh, it was a standing. It was a given. Many many source code. Many source code systems out there have tools that convert from CVS to their system, and the FreeBSD repository was long recognised as the benchmark of the repository that can't be converted. Uh, it. conventional wisdom was that our repository was so broken over the years that you couldn't convert it to anything else Uh, so I went through and fixed uh, all of those ended up with a couple of thousand lines of scripts and configuration files and huge huge amounts of hand uh, handwritten tables to convert symbols and tags and, and just basically a lot of it was also relying on memory of what what had happened in the past because, as I mentioned, CVS doesn't keep track of a lot of things. And so trying to find out that the five, the, the Relang 5 branch, the 5 stable branch, where exactly that came from on the main line because we didn't actually create a 5 stable branch until about 5.3 or so. Uh, we'd lost all that kind of information. There's no record of the exact date of when it actually happened. Uh, in the actual repository, uh, you can find it from mailing list archives and things like that. But any conversion basically needed somebody to go through and figure out all of those details. And I was silly enough to <laughs> silly enough to put myself in that position and uh, spend a couple of months trying to get it to the point where it was a viable conversion. And in the end, um, shut the repository down for a couple of days and ran it, and been picking up the pieces ever since. 
And what defines success? Just that you can check out the supported releases and they compile, or that you can go all the way back to the first release and check it out of Subversion and compile it? I haven't actually tested to make sure that you can, look, can check out and build a 2.0 release, but I believe you can. Um, I've checked it out and done diffs of various releases and branch points sort of over the last 10, 15 years worth of, of the actual repository that we converted. So, yeah, you, all the history is there. Uh, there's a few there's a few obscure things that I knew were, were, were so obscure that it wasn't worth preserving them, but for the most part, everything that ever went into a release is there. So there's a few cases where things got things got imported uh, instead of using CVS add, and I chose to discard those as vendor branch items because it was a one-off deal. It was basically because we had a tool called Easy Import that added files to CVS, and that's what people used. Um, so several thousand of those, but for the for the actual release material and the stable branches, all of that's maintained and preserved. Another definition of success is what are we using Subversion for now that we weren't, that, you know, what is left that we're using CVS for, for that matter? So right now, all developers make their authoritative changes to the base FreeBSD tree directly into Subversion. Uh, so the, clearly that's one definition of success. Another definition of success is that when we merge changes from, for example, the 8 tree to the FreeBSD 7 tree, we're now able to take advantage of Merge Info, which is a feature of Subversion that keeps track of where changes will merge from and to and, and makes it easier to remember what it is you've merged and what it is, perhaps more specifically, that you haven't merged so that you can go through and, in a more rigorous and thorough way decide what needs to be merged. But there are a number of things we aren't doing in Subversion yet. For example, only the base source tree is in Subversion. We're still maintaining uh, ports and documentation trees in CVS. Also, um, we aren't really exposing Subversion to our users. Most users who pull down our source code are going to be using CVSUP and CVS still. One of the new things we are doing in Subversion that we weren't doing in CBS is allowing users to have their own work branches and project branches. This is something we had been doing perforce, uh, which allowed people to go off and have specific projects. And we're beginning to see that traffic move into Subversion. Obviously, we have a lot of work invested in the current perforce repository, so I think we'll see new projects appear in Subversion and old ones probably continue for you know, at least the foreseeable future in, in Perforce, but I think it's a sign of the success of the project moving to Subversion that we are seeing people do it in Subversion. We're, we're also seeing some people who are, when they have something they've got in Perforce that's approaching ready to commit, they'll move over to Subversion, do a branch, drop all, drop their diffs in, and then sort of do their final integration and get things just right before they, they do the, the merge back in. And, that's going to be a that's that's one of model. that's one of the one of the advantages that we have by doing that is when people do branch development in subversion and then merge it into the main tree, all of that is visible through the logs and the history. And when you start browsing the source history, you can actually see all of the incremental changes as they went through uh, and before they were actually merged into the main line. So you get to see the development branch history as well. And that's something that we never got when we were using a separate Perforce repository. People would just basically do a code drop and it would be thousands and thousands of lines of diff with just a description of what the change, what the, uh, the, the entire change was. And you didn't actually get to see um, where individual lines and files were changed. And if there was a bug in the code drop, you couldn't actually see the history of the code behind the whole thing, except as a, as a single unit. So we get to see a lot more details and a lot more history now. Um, I suspect that basically uh, the, Perforce, the Perforce tree is probably going to wind down. I doubt it's ever going to completely go away. Uh, we have people who are very comfortable with it, with the way that it works. Um, 
but I suspect that we will increasingly see old projects reach completion in Perforce and get moved across to, off to the subversion tree and will then be either maintained in subversion or just go into the main line and, and that'll be the end of it. And new stuff seems to be appearing in subversion right from the beginning as a, as a development branch. So, yeah. Even though we didn't adopt one of the distributed control systems, uh, moving to subversion is still a significant advantage to people who want to use them since we now get explicit change sets and there's no need to convert from what Peter accurately described as a rather sort of convoluted uh, revision control history. So for people who want to use Git or want to use Mercurial, they're now in a much better state than they were before to do that, uh, which is very important because we have a lot of consumers who build FreeBSD into much larger and much more complicated uh, products, and having the ability to pull down change sets will make it much easier for them to keep track of what we've been doing and merging it into their own tree, which I think is which is very important given the way that people use FreeBSD. It's probably also important to note that CVS has not been switched off. We're still exporting yes. from subversion to CVS to keep Sorry. our users happy. FreeBSD 6 and 7 were, were initially released from the CVS tree. We have uh, an exporter script that runs, which converts, uh, basically exports all of the changes as individual discrete commits into the existing CVS tree, and we're intending to maintain uh, and complete the 6.x and 7.x release cycle in CVS. Uh, whether we do our releases for 8 and beyond from Subversion directly, that still remains to be seen. There is a distinct possibility that we'll be able to do that. But for the 7 branch, you can continue to use CVSUP uh, and CSUP and everything just as before. So All of the existing CVS web tools, everything, that's all maintained. Well, we're, uh, I think, getting close to the time when the shuttle buses will be coming to take us back to our various hotels and then on to the 15th year anniversary party. So unless there's any other sort of pressing topics, maybe we can wind this up. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me, and I guess we'll go enjoy ourselves. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and this has been BSD Talk number 164.